So I wanted to uh, tell you a little background as to why I'm preaching here this morning, and you guys know half the story. Um, the truth is, uh, I'm in a Christian ethics class uh, about the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, this quarter, and I had a recent assignment uh, where I needed to write a sermon as though I would preach it. It was just to be a hypothetical sermon, and the assignment uh, was do a couple weeks ago, and I guess I did all right. Uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, and so then in that paper, I had to also explain what would be the occasion and all that, and I, I said I would preach here. It's possible I could be invited to preach here again. I have done it in the past, and I didn't think anything of, of it. I just you know sent it. And then uh, me and Misa were planning to come here last week, and then we heard... Um, unfortunately, that Caleb and Elise had COVID. Um, and, but we said, well, let's, let's plan to come next week if, if there is a service. And then uh, Caleb called me and said, I know it's short notice, but <laughs> could you preach? I felt like, hmm, what's God telling me here? I've already written a sermon and we were already planning to come. It's kind of hard to say no. Uh, <laughs> so such as it is, I, I have a sermon for you. Now, uh, what may be a little bit different in this sermon is I will be, oh, it's not that much different. I quote from other uh, theologians and I quote from uh, uh, commentaries, uh, but I'll also be quoting some from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, now, our passage this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Micah, and this is a well-known passage uh, with a particularly, uh, maybe we could say prestigious verse. Uh, Micah six eight, which is the focus of my sermon. Uh, this is often quoted as kind of a summary statement of the message of the Old Testament. Uh, if you're trying to summarize it, uh, this is used, often used. Uh, Terence Fretheim says uh, it's regarded as the quintessential statement of prophetic thought. However, as with many other popular and oft-quoted uh, verses, there is a danger of misinterpretation or appropriation as many have used this verse to serve or support their own causes or interpret it as endorsing a particular theological uh, or political position. Uh, for some, it is simply a threefold formula concerning personal piety and morality in one's individual walk. And others, it's a call for activism uh, in the cause of social justice. Regardless, what should be understood is that this verse verse contains both serious theological and political implications. Now, I know we may not like the idea of politics in the pulpit. Uh, in our tradition, there's a tendency to completely separate politics and religious life. Um, we kind of like a strict dichotomy between the sacred and the profane, the spiritual and the secular, the divine and the mundane. But I have to tell you that the faith of Israel of which this passage is referring to, was a faith that did not divide these two realities. In fact, it could be said that the division of worship practices from social action, in this case, was the impetus for Micah's warning in this chapter and in this book. Uh, so I would like to also draw some, like I said, uh, from Dr. King, as he's in the forefront of my mind, and, and maybe many people are thinking of him uh, during this time of year uh, as 
Martin Luther King Day just passed in, in, in Feb, uh, January, and this is Black History Month. Uh, I find that his commentary with other commentary is appropriate and helpful at looking at the message of Micah. Also, I find some interesting uh, similarities between their lives. So let me dig in. Uh, the prophet Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, and he lived during the second half of the 8th century B.C., long time ago. His prophetic activity took place during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and I find it interesting, if you'll indulge me, that Dr. King also uh, performed his activity during the administration of three presidents. Uh, so Micah was hailed from a small town called Moresheth. It was in southern Judah. And this means his relationship with the capital city of Jerusalem, the city which this uh, oracle is about. Uh, he was a, an outsider. He would have been considered an outsider. He was probably an unpopular and controversial figure uh, because his prophecy uh, criticized and condemned those in power in Jerusalem. Dr. King also was called an outside agitator at times. Um, the book of Micah is known for both its warnings of judgment and promises of restoration. Uh, continually through the book, uh, Micah places two attributes of God side by side, his justice and his mercy. In fact, it's, uh, if you go through the book, there's maybe a chapter or two on, ju on a judgment, and then there's these really great promises, and we like to a lot of times focus on the second half. And of course, that makes sense, being that we have Christ, um, that we can focus on that. But uh, just getting into that is that in this case, in the book of Micah, God is upset with Israel's actions, and yet, because he's God, he continues to uphold his own faithfulness and love for his people. Um, quoting Dr. King in a similar uh, preaching, God has two outstretched arms. One is strong enough to surround us with justice, and one is gentle to embrace us with grace. On the one hand, God is a God of justice who punished Israel for her wayward deeds. And on the other hand, he is a forgiving father whose heart was filled with unutterable joy when the prodigal returned home. God has every right to be angry with his people, but we will see in the passage today uh, but also, ultimately, his mercy and forgiveness lead to redemption and the reconciliation of all things. So, looking at the sixth chapter of the book of Micah, we encounter God opening a lawsuit against his people. Just at the beginning uh, in, in verse 1 through 3. Um, in verse 3, he says, My people, what did I ever do to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Then he goes on to speak of the ways that he has helped them in the past, mentioning Moses and the Exodus and, and all the ways that God has, has worked with Israel. He speaks of his earnest concern here, and he wants to know why the relationship has gone sour. God speaks with earnest. He speaks, he's upset, but he still speaks as one in a relationship with Israel. He addresses them as my people, and he calls their attention to the Righteous acts that he has done. The word righteous acts, uh, which is in verse 5, I'm giving you a little ahead of myself here, but uh, that word is the word tzedakah in Hebrew. John Golden Gay says that this denotes doing the right thing in relationship 
to the people with whom one is in a committed relationship. I think we often think of righteousness as doing what is right according to God's moral law, which is is a good way to think of it. Uh, Perhaps it's like being an upstanding citizen, uh, sort of in an individualistic sense, like being a moral, having a morally exemplar life. But what I hope we don't miss here is that the word tzedakah indicates doing the right thing in relationship, committed relationship. Uh, this is Yahweh speaking in reference to his covenant relationship with Israel, the covenant to which he has been faithful, but Israel has been faithless. And how have they been faithless? Let me give you some more background here. Well, Jerusalem had become a prosperous and there was a wealthy upper class, uh, but they were taking care, uh, taking advantage of the lower income farmers. And the businessmen also had the backing of the kind of a corrupt government who would take bribes. And uh, for those who could afford it, uh, they would get favorable court decisions, Um, kind of like lobbying maybe. Uh, They were using this to steal the land away from the poor and the widows in the community. Uh, They engaged in what today might be considered shrewd business deals, buying land out from under people, working to get what you need or want at cost, uh, cutting out uh, the profits of the seller so you can make more. But this wasn't just neglect of the poor. They weren't just ignoring them. This was actually outright exploitation. So in the midst of this, the religious leaders, unfortunately, they were also corrupt, and they were more concerned with their incomes than following God's covenant. And uh, does that sound familiar today? I mean, there's a number of leaders, religious leaders in the pulpits that uh, seem to be more concerned with their bank accounts. So um, in chapter 3, I'll read in Micah 3, verses 9 through 11, we get a little bit more of this background. Hear this, leaders of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, you who reject justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her officials give justice for a bribe, and her priests teach for hire. Her prophets offer divination for silver, yet they rely on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord in our midst? Evil won't come upon us. That was Micah 3, 9 through 11. So you can see in this that there were three groups leading the way. The wealthy, the ruling government, and the religious establishment. But they were unfortunately united against the poor. The problem is they didn't think that hurting one part of the population would affect them. Uh, They failed to realize that all life is interrelated. All humanity is part of one global community made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Dr. King also spoke a lot about this beloved community and warned, he who works against community is working against the whole of creation. He went on to say, to the degree I harm my brother, no matter what he is doing to me, to that extent I am harming myself. After all, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. I think today we pretty much agree with these sentiments. We understand basic human rights. We get appalled when we see them violated on the news in countries that have totalitarian regimes. It is easy to think of it in distant terms over there. And we forget that 
this interrelatedness is true even for my neighbor, for that cashier at the grocery store, for the guy who cut me off in traffic. They're all interrelated. And this was Israel's great sin, that they didn't view even their own people as brothers and sisters. They looked down on them and treated them shamefully. Now, finally get to our passage. (laughs) Starting verse 6 and 7, we see a series of questions. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Now, again, this is all Micah, but he's now telling us kind of the response. The beginning of chapter 6 was God giving a court case against Israel. Then he sort of speaks in the way of Israel replying to God, hey, we have some questions. And they seem like legitimate questions. You know, how should I approach God? However, the questions intensify um, from individual sacrifices to thousands of offerings, even to human sacrifice, which, by the way, in the Old Testament, that's a no-no. This actually causes us to ask, what's going on? What's happening here? Is this really a case of a lack of religious knowledge? Are they are they asking these questions, you know, authentically? Uh, Golden Gay, John Golden Gay, suggests that it might be an indignant and sort of uh, hysterical response to Yahweh's acts of righteousness that we just talked about before. Uh, perhaps it's something like Israel getting more and more absurd and saying, for instance. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with thousands of rivers of oil? Um, Stephen Dempster says that there was a precedent for uh, someone sacrificing thousands of rams. Uh, Usually this would be like wealthy or a king might do so. But there was nothing like 10,000 rivers of oil, olive oil, you know, uh, torrents of oil. This would be uh, ludicrous, really. And uh, this exaggeration and intensification uh, goes to point, like I said, of human sacrifice. Um, So how should we take this? Well, one thing we shouldn't think is that this shows that the people of Israel simply needed more religious knowledge, uh, as if they didn't know what God wanted from them. Uh, The truth is that they had the ritual part of their religion, their faith, down. Uh, There's no doubt about that. In fact, uh, they knew how to give great sacrifices and animals, especially the priests, the prophets, the rulers, the businessmen. They could afford to do this after all. But coming to God with sacrifices while simultaneously hurting and abusing the weak is, uh, is not what God desires. So in light of this passage, the question I have to consider today is, uh, can we claim to worship the Lord when we do so only in a religious or a spiritual uh, capacity. Um, In other words, are we dividing our life into a sacred time and a plain, mundane time, and only really referencing referencing God when we're in the um, church or when we're listening to a worship song? And then if we only do it at those times, are we truly worshiping God? And I think this sounds familiar. Uh, We have a tendency of focusing on what we call theological concerns um, within the church, 
and uh, you know, we might know our positions on, on anything, and we might even like to debate a little bit with people. Uh, we can certainly answer questions of you know, free will versus divine sovereignty, infant or adult baptism, eschatology, spiritual gifts. You know, we, can, we can speak to all those things. We might, someone might ask you, or we might ask someone who, who's a Christian, um, tell me about your spiritual life. And the answer is usually in the terms of Bible study, Morning quiet times, small groups, church attendance, uh, Wednesday night prayer, uh, maybe uh, tithing and supporting missionaries, which, hey, I have no problem with that. We're very appreciative of that. In fact, what I'm not trying to say is that any of these things are bad. Actually, these are all very good things that we should continue to do. Uh, it's just that we have a tendency of speaking of our Christian faith only in this way, as only individualistic, as only spiritual as only universal and intangible. We forget that our faith is also communal, and it takes place in physical reality, and that it's specific and concrete. The Lord didn't just come to us as a floating spirit. That, that's an actual heresy in the early church. He came to us as a human. He became incarnate. And we are not just body, uh, spirits tra- trapped in bodies. That actually comes from Platonic thought, not from the Bible. Um, we don't just love our neighbor in general or universal sense. We think of specific people when we say neighbor. Jim, Susan, Shamika, Dante. Our love isn't just an inward affection, but is demonstrated in tangible, concrete ways. We might give someone a gift or uh, help them out with something. So like the wealthy, the rulers, the religious leaders in Israel, we can also measure our faith by a spiritual life, and forget that it is also spiritual to help our neighbor, to care for the poor and needy in concrete ways. So, now we get to verse 6, and there's an answer to these questions. Micah now answers. He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. Right here, the prophet Micah speaks up again and responds to these questions. Um, And he gets at the heart of the issue. Uh, Terrence Fretheim says the basic issue at stake is not the nature and number of one's sacrifice. In effect, no offering that's brought before the Lord is finally sufficient to enable one's rightness before God. Um, Worship practices in themselves are not irrelevant but they are insufficient in themselves as a response for the sinner before God. So if you put that in in our terms now in Christ, uh, we can be reminded that our salvation is bought and paid for. Jesus paid it all. We're not saying that that uh, the things that you live out in your life, the good works that you do, are are any way contributing to our salvation. But that doesn't mean that uh, there's not a Christian life that we walk. And we'll get, I'll get to some of that later. But um, So the answer is that he's already told them. And uh, now we get to this uh, threefold thing that you hear all the time. It's the triple formula, the three-piece suit, the uh, overquoted and underinterpreted part of the verse. Uh, the first part is the action of doing justice. This involves activity, 
not simply passive observing the law or just not violating the law. Uh, It's not written in the negative, do not, but rather to do. But the question is, what is one to do? Justice. Now, justice is a word uh, we use a lot in English, and uh, but we have many presuppositions or uh, presumptions about what it means from our own culture and our own language. And we have to remember that this word justice is actually a Hebrew word because this is originally written in Hebrew, and we have to look at what that word means. Uh, a common explanation or oversimplification of justice that I have heard in churches today is um, justice is getting what you deserve. And it's usually paired with mercy, which is not getting what you deserve. And finally, we wrap it up with grace, which is getting what you don't deserve. There you go, three-point sermon. And uh, this verse in English seems to be an easy three-point sermon, right? I can just say justice, mercy, and humility in this case. So we deserve God's wrath. Instead, we have been given mercy. So therefore, be humble. Boom, end of sermon. Well, that's not quite... I mean, that, that might be a good sermon, but that would not be a sermon on Micah 6.8. Um, so anyways, I want to get into that word, and the word is mishpat. And mishpat has um, a lot of meanings, uh, correcting of wrongs, uh, customs, divine laws. It could mean ex- exercising authority. In that case, it would be referring to uh, what the leaders should be doing. Of course, their authority doesn't come from themselves. It also comes from God, so they have to be responsible to follow what God has told them to do. Uh, another definition might be speaking the word of God to establish shalom. And there's another word, shalom, which has a lot of meaning. We might say peace, but it's also like the whole human life. It's flourishing. Um, Chad Bird uh, says that the Messiah's mishpat, Jesus' mishpat, is the salvation and restoration of sinners. So to put it in the life of Jesus, what does mishpat look like? It looks like Jesus' ministry, uh, that he not only helped and healed people, but he also died for their sins. There's two sides of it, all in that one word. (laughs) So uh, we might want to look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 uh, to see some other words that kind of inform us here what the uh, prophet may have been looking back at. So in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, in verse 12, we see that, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord by walking in his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? So we hear fear, walking, love, worship, a lot of that right there is very similar language. And later on in verse 18, we see that he executes justice, uh, which could also mean do justice. So it's almost the same. He does justice, talking about God himself, does justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are also to love the resident aliens, resident aliens, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. So, uh, in the context of this, we see that Yahweh, that Jesus, that 
God is a God of action, and those who worship him walk in that footsteps as well. So this might go against only thinking of this in terms of a private Christian devotion uh, or simply reminding people that they are sinners uh, with, without reprimanding the ones who have abused power to hurt people. So in some ways, the uh, social justice activists who call us out to protest against systemic oppression, they're not completely wrong, but they often leave out two other components. So now we move to the other parts of the verse that they often leave out. The next part in Micah 6.8 informs us to embrace faithful love in my version. There's many <laughs> word different versions here. We'll get into that because there's a word, hesed. And that word, which is the second word, you got embracing and then faithful love is the word hesed. Stephen Dempster uh, unpacks this in his commentary. He says that it's really hard to capture the word hesed in English. Um, many possible words that are used are Loyalty, mercy, fidelity, steadfast love. In your Bibles, you may have kindness, loving kindness, loyal love. All of these are encapsulated in the word hesed. Um, in fact, I was thinking of, I, I forgot to look, but when, when we're going through the Bible in a year, if you've been going through the Bible in a year, been reading, uh, been watching some videos the, the Bible project does. And as you go through that, there are some, they, they talk about hesed. They have a video on hesed. They have a video on all of the words, mishpat, on uh, some of the other words that are in this passage. And they just tell you how much, it's like a five-minute video to tell you about one word. So there's a lot in this. Uh, I love this word, hesed. It's indivisibly linked from the covenant relationship with God. This covenant is between all people and God. Uh, for us in Christ, we know that there, that Christ has made this available to all people. At this time, Micah was speaking to the Israel who had a specific covenant. But now we know that the Gentiles, and which I am a Gentile, I'm not Jewish, uh, are invited into that covenant. And so this is really a, a relationship with God and all people now. And uh, one is called to do hesed. Well, no, it, we're not called to do hesed, but to... Ahava hesed. Yeah, that's another word. <laughs> Ahava, which is translated here embrace, means love as well. It's, it gets at the inward motivation. Uh, not that one should just do justice, but also that you should fully embrace a faithful love towards all humanity. Another way to trans this, translate this might be to say to love, love, or love loving, or loving love. <laughs> So, um, you know, this connects well. Uh, Dr. King had a, uh, in a sermon speech, gave something like this. He said that love is one of the pivotal points of the Christian faith. There is another side called justice, and justice is really love in application. Justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. Standing beside love is always justice, and we are only using the tools of justice. So, love must work to correct injustices, and support those who are vulnerable in our society. Uh, but a fully realized Christian love ethic needs one more component to be effective. And so now we look. Walking humbly with your God. To be humble in this regard is to be restrained, 
unassuming, unpretentious. It's not boasting or virtue signaling. It sometimes works behind the scenes without seeking credit. This is not to say that it's wrong to make your faithful actions or do faithful actions in public. Uh, In fact, if you look at the civil rights, for instance, a lot of what they did was public so that they could expose the evil of racism and segregation. But uh, there's a question about how much should we display our public goodness? Uh, There's a lot of YouTubers and influencers who... uh, have videos of them helping out the homeless or helping people out. And I always have the question, is this really, they they would claim that maybe they're doing it to inspire others to do the same, but did you have to advertise it? Did you have to video it? You know, Um, Jesus brought this into question on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you do all of your acts of prayer and good works and tithing in front of everyone else, then you've got your reward. But if you want the reward from your Father in heaven, you do this in secret. But I don't think it means always hidden. It just means that our heart, uh, for instance, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, guess what? My hands always know what the other hand's doing. It's it's interconnected, you know, brain that I have here. But, of course, the idea is that I don't, I have a certain attitude when I do that. And whether someone sees me or not is not in my mind. But there are a lot of people who do things only so that you can see them doing it. And that's, that's I think, the, the problem. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, me and Misa write a support letter. Uh, that is a way for us to report what God's been doing. Uh, if we didn't send you anything, then you have no idea what's going on. But we're not doing that to say, hey, look what we did. You know, So it's, it, there's a motivation, an inward motivation that affects our outward actions. So I'm just trying to say that humility doesn't negate our faithful actions being done in public. Um, But also important here is that it talks about humility in relationship to God. Uh, Golden Gay says that walking in the Bible is a metaphor for a life journey or a life performance. Um, Our Christian lives are a journey walking with God. And of course, some people are further along the path, further along the journey. Um, and I'm reminded when I first came to faith, one of the first uh, verses that I memorized, two verses I memorized, was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. And I, that's, I had that in my head for many years, and it took me many years before I finally read verse 10. And that's interesting. I just read one little couple of verses. I didn't read the next verse, which says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So here's how I understand that. I understand that we are saved by grace. We are saved by what Christ did. It is done. It is finished. That is something that should motivate our heart. I mean, it moves me. I'm grateful when I think of that. I could not contribute. There was no good works that I could do that would contribute to my salvation. And now, after I'm a believer, any good works, any good things that I do, they still don't contribute to my salvation. God is not up there keeping a tally score waiting for me to live up to my potential. Okay? 
But at the same time, God created us, I would say, so that we get to do good works, so that we get to do that. I was thinking of the idea of, a, of someone who becomes a lawyer. They work years and years, and they study, and then they take this terrible, really hard exam, the bar exam, and they're just worried, did I pass, did I pass? And when they pass, they get to practice law. They don't see it as a burden. They see it as something good. I think we should take that word practice law and maybe use that in place of saying obey the law. Because obey the law, we, I think, oh, man, I have to obey God's law. I have to follow what he's telling me. But I get to practice God's law. I get to walk it out in front of my neighbor. That's a totally different way, totally different motivation. And uh, we should be inspired by that, by the Holy Spirit um, working in our lives. Um, Teretz Fretheim also mentions here, it's, it's really important to look at the fact that the action on behalf of the less fortunate and the vulnerable is paired with God, a journey with God. So we have, you know, do justice, love, love, and then that's paired with and walk humbly. He said, um, that's because both affect each other. We need them together. We need these three together. We can't have one separated out. Um, and this is kind of like a similar move that Jesus did um, with two other Old Testament texts uh, in Mark 12, 28 to 31, where he said, love your neighbor and love your neighbor as, I mean, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He pulled those together, said they work together and they need to be not separated. Um, finally, I want to bring to our attention the wording again in 6.8. Just Look at what it says, uh, and I, I didn't write it down, but you, it, hear, O man, hear, O human. What is he talking about there? That's important. Uh, this can often be read in a very, I think we do this a lot. We read it in an individualistic way. It's t- what is my job? My job is to do this Micah 6.8. But it's actually, that word could be translated humanity or humankind. So this is a message to all of God's people, and maybe to all people. Um, in the book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes by E. Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien, uh, they talk about individualist and collectivist cultures, and um, they kind of explain that to us. Um, some collectivist cultures are like Korea and Turkey, and then there's a lot of other ones as well. It's not, it's not communist, it's collectivist. It means that the people have a more of a group identity. Uh, if you ask, um, let's put it this way, you know, who is your father? Um, that, that question is important there. You know, what your father did is, uh, reflects on your own life. Uh, whereas in this country, you know, my, my dad could have been a criminal. And I'm like, but I'm not my dad. I'm, I'm a separate person. I'm a separate person. But reputation is important in a collectivist culture. In fact, in Turkey, we go to this certain area, and there are a lot of Turks who had become atheists. They're just like, they kind of hang out in this one area. Uh, they all listen to rock music, and they all have long hair. And <laughs> but they're atheists. But they will defend Islam if you get into a conversation with them. And it's interesting. They, they don't believe it anymore, but they'll still defend it because it's part of their culture's identity. Now, you ask an American who has left their faith, whatever it may be, say it's a Christian, a former Christian, or 
you know, grew up Christian, I should say. Uh, and they, they're happy to talk about all the things they don't like about their faith and how bad it is. Um, so that's just a difference. That, that's the individualist attitude versus the collectivist. And in this book, they try to make sure that you understand there's not one that's right or wrong. They actually need to both learn from each other. Both cultures need to learn a little bit from each other. Um, and But <laughs> there's a, a thing in there that I learned that America, on a scale uh, that they did some survey, is actually the most individualist nation in the world. <laughs> it blows all the others away. Uh, one could say that we took our individualism and we made it our own. Now, I'm saying this to remind us that it's not just that we walk with God. We, we are like, we're holding God's hand or he's holding our hand. We walk humbly with the Lord. But this whole passage reminds us that we are also in a relationship with others in faith, in the Christian faith, the body of Christ. And so we should not try to look at a passage like this and say, how can I do this? I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do justice. I, because it's not meant to be wrestled with alone. We need to connect with each other. Um, and this is, not a, this is not an either or. This is a both and situation where we should have personal devotion. We should uh, be faithful even when we are alone by ourselves. And yet we need to practice our faith with other people. This is a reflection. There's, there, there is quiet reflection and there's also social action. And by social action, I mean in society, socially, with other people. Uh, the rulers and the wealthy and the religious leaders were a group. And God was holding them as a group responsible. And this passage informs us to work together to achieve these ends. So, yes, you can write down uh, this passage and you can put it on your fridge. There's no problem with that. And uh, But we also can't. Uh, really be walking out by ourselves. So we must work together. This is a, 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 a faith that is not just personal, but it is also to be shared. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you accomplished on the cross. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that it is done, it is paid for. We thank you that we now get the blessing, the opportunity to help our neighbors. And that's not just in a general sense, but it's specific people in our community. Maybe not even just our next door neighbors, but people that we see when we're driving through Atlanta. Lord, we have ways to get involved and help others, but we can't do it on our own. We don't expect to. Lord, you have given us each different gifts and abilities. We are the body of Christ, and we're not all uh, one body part. Some of us are a knee, and some of us are a heart, and some of us are an elbow, and Lord, we are all uh, to work together. And Lord, we just thank you for the, the blessing of your word that, that encourages us and teaches us and, and inspires us. And Lord, we just, uh, we rest on you and on your grace. We need more of your grace in our lives working. Help us to walk in faith, uh, always trusting you. 
And thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, I pray.